Today we are talking to Brian Powell, the Director of Engineering at Tangram Flex, and we discuss lessons learned from previous startups, cutting through the noise when launching a product, and the core principles of prototyping for production. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So your office that you're at now, mm-hmm. what's what's uh, what company is that? Because I know you did some some moving around, some hopscotching. Yeah, so um, you know, complete set the the startup that I was with uh, down in Cincinnati. Actually, coming in the second week of January, we ran out of cash as startups do. So mm-hmm. went back into the market looking for uh, you know different opportunities, and actually landed with a uh, a new spinoff that's uh, soon to be announced here. Um, from uh, a parent company called Galois, which is based out of Portland, Oregon, but I'll be based in the uh, Cincinnati-Dayton area. Interesting. So I want to know about Complete Set. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious because this is like this is how we bring value, you know? Yeah, absolutely. What did Complete Set do? So Complete Set was this. It was kind of this hybrid mashup of um, eBay meets. Amazon meets meets Wikipedia for collectibles. So we profiled and tracked uh, close to 300 different brands of, you know, products that were coming out. Things from, you know, new stuff like uh, Johnny Cupcakes, which is uh, a t-shirt company out of Boston, um, you know, uh, Homage, which is, uh, you know, a clothing company out of uh, Columbus, Ohio, to, you know, the big names like Disney and Hasbro and, uh, you know, even, you know, the Kenner stuff, you know, that Hasbro acquired during that purchase. And so, you know, what we would do is we would sort of track those items as they were released and, uh, you know, A, uh, sort of track the value of them and what people were trading for them. But at Complete Set at its core was really about sort of taking collectors and matching them to the items that they wanted. So they could come in and track their collection, say, you know, hey, I'm, I want to go on the hunt for this particular item. And then, you know, what we were doing was uh, sort of taking that information and exposing it to vendors that could then come in and go out and sort of hunt that inventory and match it to, you know, to our audience. So you're matching collectors with people who had those collectibles. Exactly. Yep. And we would sort of facilitate that transaction. But then we were also sort of to keep the marketplace full of stuff. We were doing a consignment model where we, you know, we ran a warehouse, we were taking in, you know, six, 700 piece collections, and then we were liquidating them for people, um, you know, that were, you know, some of it was, you know, people were sort of changing focus. Maybe they, you know, really were into Star Wars at one point and they wanted to transition over to like movie props or something along those lines. And we would, um, you know, come in, we take that collection from them, we do a consignment fee, and then we liquidate. It. And because we knew what people were searching for inside of our network, we had, a, you know, and, and we were able to send out the notifications when those things came available, really completes that was sort of a marketing platform for marketing to people who were looking for specific items. Right. Because that's like your unique information that you have is who wants exactly. what. Yep. So then how, how big of a company was that company? How many people? Uh, so we were, we were about 13 people, including the four people, uh, in the warehouse. My development team was a team of six. So So like, I'm curious, was it, was it a lack of the market? Were there a lot of people that were really into collectibles or I'm curious as to where it kind of didn't take off the way you guys thought it would or how, how the whole thing wrapped up? 
So, uh, you know, I think the, the thing that kind of, the, the thing that kind of got us was the assumption was, you know, we, we had sort of unclear metrics into what our costs to list a particular item was until very, you know, sort of right in the, you know, we, we, we layered in the software in middle of September into the fulfillment center where we went in and we sort of, you know, we took, uh, like six weeks and wrote a complete custom package for the fulfillment center from, you know, barcode scanners, bins integrated with photography software, a completely custom shelving system, um, and Android tablets for picking and packing orders. And, you know, we did that because, you know, complete set was, it's not like, any other inventory company. We looked around at a couple other solutions. You know, everything was a quantity of one. It belonged to a specific user. It was in a specific condition. It had a specific price that they wanted for it, um, or it was going to auction. And, you know, inside of that, you know, capacity, you know, in most inventory systems that are out there are, I've got 500 of these items. They show up on a pallet. I need to stick them in a spot in the warehouse. I need to go get them when I need them. And, you know, that just wasn't the solution that we needed. And so, you know, we came in and we built that system, put in a very sort of complex, almost IoT based, you know, eventing structure of, you know, knowing, okay, this item started to be received, it's been received, it's going to photography, it's in photography, it's out of photography. And that provided us a really granular view of the items that were moving through complete set all the way out from when they came, you know, from when they came in all the way out, you know, through shipping and when they into delivery. Um, and we didn't really get those numbers until October, November timeframe. And we sort of realized that our cost per item that we needed to hit to break even, um, you know, was around $15. And we started moving towards that um, through the month of November. And then December killed us. And you would think that December is a great month for, you know, for merchandise. But you're talking about collectors who are using disposable income to buy items that they want. And they're using all of that for family trips and to buy presence. And so revenue sank, we were out raising a little bit of money and we just, we couldn't get it done to, uh, to come back. So, you know, it, it happens. It was, uh, you know, the market kind of got us and, you know, we, we probably should have focused on, you know, more, uh, features that really, you know, were less marketplacey and more recurring revenue because, you know, every month, you know, we grew 45% for three months in a row revenue growth. And every month we would start at zero because we were doing, you know, we were doing sort of that marketplace model and we needed to probably put some features in place that allowed us to sort of, you know, if the, if the hill was, you know, let's say $30,000 and you equate that to 30,000 feet, we needed something that would move base camp up 5,000 foot each month to allow us to climb that hill a little easier. Interesting. What It's so valuable to take a look back at uh, something like this because we're all kind of we're all in a business and all businesses are susceptible to the market. It's the way the world works. And we all have to watch all the different parts of our, our companies, primarily the income. And so that's, that's a nice reflection on that. So if you were to do it again, you would say you'd focus on the recurring revenue up front so that when you guys had down months like December or seasonally down months that that recurring revenue would take you through. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, we were focused on being sort of almost a brick and mortar type of business model, right? Where you, you got to get this much foot traffic through the door or through your website, right? Per month to hit that number. And you've got to figure out how to grow that traffic, you know, but largely our income was tied to how much, you know, how many collections we could pull in and you go through the holidays and, you know, people aren't going to, you know, ship you a collection of stuff. They're, you know, they're, they're out, they're doing other things. You, know, you sort of hit that business law between, 
Thanksgiving to Christmas where you just can't get anything done. So it was a little bit of a constraint of inventory. But really, if we would have had those recurring sort of revenue pieces in place, you know, it could have changed the business pretty substantially because we could have figured out we could have figured out how to grown that that specific recurring revenue stream and, you know, know that we, you know, that that was a steady, you know, sort of, you know, steady sort of input into the financial baseline, you know, and then, and then have the, uh, the merge, the, the marketplace stuff on top of it. So if you had, you had about 12, 13 people and mm-hmm. half of them were engineers and then what were the other half? So, um, you, we had a, you know, we had some uh, marketing people, sales guys that were actually like working with people who wanted to sell their collections and, and sort of go driving them through that process. And then we had the warehouse staff. So we had, you know, a professional photographer on staff. We had, you know, um, receivers, packers, shippers, et cetera. You know, everything that you would need to run an Amazon-like warehouse to get stuff in and out. Do you think it would have made a difference if you, like, only had three engineers and instead got three more salespeople? Um, maybe. Uh, you know, we, you know, the focus was, you know, when I sort of joined the company, I came into the company, uh, 18 months, uh, before we closed. And at that point they had already released an, uh, an iOS application and they had released an Android application and then they had their mobile webs. They had the website, uh, and, you know, from, from that perspective, you know, I think we all would have agreed that we probably would have pulled back on putting out mobile applications, even though our users were sort of jumping up and down that they wanted them. Um, because almost, you know, like 70, 70 to 75% of our traffic for the company was just on our mobile website, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, the mobile web was getting it done. Did we really need to make that investment in the iOS and the Android applications? But, you know, this decision was largely sort of already made that it was out there. And, yeah. you know, the, the impression was that pulling that back would do more damage than... Um, well, the money was already spent. good. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what's, what, what's next for you? What are you? Where are you at now? So I'm at a, a new com- a new company that literally just formed um, about uh, the last Monday um, called Tangram Flex, and it's really focused on sort of taking functional um, sort of approaches to programming and applying it to uh, systems engineering. And um, that's about as, as deep as I'll go on it. Uh, a lot of their work is sort of focused on the, uh, the government side of things. Um, but, you know, it's really cool. It could, uh, the, the, the technology that's been developed here could change the way that we sort of approach um, software development. You know, mm-hmm. if it, it's, it's sort of taking it back to the way that, you know, building codes, you know, there's a whole bunch of algorithms that have been in place for, you know, the way the CAD systems are, you know, are used to sort of, you know, put structures together. And largely, a lot of that uh, stuff doesn't exist in the software engineering world. And so when you look at that problem of, you know, how do we can, how do we increase cybersecurity? How do you increase interoperability of, you know, components? And, you know, how do you sort of take a system and make it very flexible uh, by focusing on the individual pieces of it? You know, this Tangram's, Tangram's approach is really, you know, focused on doing that. You guys are taking concepts from other complicated engineering projects and then applying them to software engineering projects. That's, that's exactly right. Yep. Well, that sounds smart. At the end of the day, there's not going to be like, oh, wait, so is there going to be like building codes and stuff now for software? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it's so much that. I think, I, you know, I don't know if we'll, we'll get to that approach. It's really about sort of generating the tooling that allows people to uh, ensure 
that they're, you know, the projects that they're building, you know, are secure and that they're really flexible and that they can be sort of reconfigured, um, you know, on the fly. Good. Cause otherwise you'd call the company like red tape. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and I don't think anybody buy that. So no, uh, I don't think you're, you're going to win the hearts and minds of developers that way. I don't think so either. Have you ever wanted more oversight in your code? Yeah. <laughs> the answer is no. So, Have you wanted a board of non-technical people deciding how you write software? No, please no. So, so that's cool. That's that sounds actually really interesting because you're taking principles at work and and complicated engineering and you're bringing them over just to another industry that seems to lack lack it at least to my experience. Yep. Very cool. Very cool. So you're pumped about it. I am. Yeah. It's, um, it was one of those sort of, you know, when the conversation started about it, it was even hard for me to get it into my head. And, you know, here I am three days on the job and just, you know, drowning in all of the information that's coming at me. But, you know, it's, there's glimmers of hope of like, wow, I now understand how this particular, you know, thing is going to go together. And, you know, we're very early on. I mean, I'm employee one, of this company and you know we're we're spinoff or you know we're we're going to be uh fully funded um but you know it's uh we just got to get through this you know initial piece of starting to get the building box in place and putting together a great team and you know uh, you know hiring is uh something that's you know hiring effectively in the engineering space is something that's really near and dear to my heart because if you do it wrong it can be really really painful for you well, yeah, if you get people that don't know how to build a foundation to build a foundation, good luck building a house. <laughs> exactly, right, yeah. So so now you're on this hunt for the best of the best, right? Correct, yep. What what technologies are you partial to for this build? Well, um, you know, the, 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 the stuff that we're doing is largely, you know, continuous integration type work. So there's not really a, you know, set of languages or, you know, or things that we're looking, you know, specifically for. And, you know, it's, there's not, we're not inheriting much either. So um, the, you know, the, it's sort of a green, you know, a blue ocean here of, you know, what we could use. And, you know, we get the, unlike some, you know, roles that you step into where it's largely prescribed what you're going to build and what, what it is. Um, you know, I think that the fundamentals and, the, you know, fundamental ideas and the concepts are there, but how it goes together and what it looks like and how it operates, all of that's to be determined. And so, you know, those are the type of projects that are kind of really exciting to step into. So you're looking for more of like a generalized architect to come on board first with you and then you guys kind of make those decisions? Uh, so we have the we have the people who've done the original proof of concept with our parent company that sort of, you know, oh, cool have prescribed the building blocks of those pieces. And now it's just trying to figure out how do we put those building blocks together and what are we going to stick them together with? So, Okay. So you're, you're in that process right now of discovery of figuring out what technologies you're going to use to, to ins- take this idea of this proof of concept, this prototype that you have, and then make an MVP out of it. That's right. Yep. That's exciting, man. Oh, you're yeah. in like a, you're in a very, there's lots of highs right now. You're in a very oh, cool yeah. part of a- Yeah. I mean, it's, you're, you're back to every time something clicks a little bit better. You're like, oh, now I get it. Like, <laughs> so are you, are you the CTO of this company? Well, I'm the director of engineering. Um, the people, the, we've actually, the two people who've developed the technology have stepped into the interim CTO roles. So the expectation there is that, you know, um, as we get to sort of this company being fully commercialized, then at that point, you know, they'll transition back to the to the mothership and, um, you know, continue to build all the awesome things that they do over there. Well, they seem pretty smart. I mean, they found you and you sound smart. So <laughs> thanks. So, uh, your primary language that you have the most experience, what is that? 
Uh, I write a lot of my stuff in Go. Um, really? Yeah. So I started in PHP, you know, like most people do when they're sort of hacking stuff together. Um, got a lot of love with PHP, sort of meandered through Ruby. Um, not really in love with that. You know, then I, then Node uh, popped onto the scene and, you know, became pretty popular. Um, but then, you know, you start to realize all of the drawbacks of writing server-side stuff and uh, in JavaScript and then, uh, found go and go is just one of those things that for, you know, um, people find a language that just sort of clicks and I can look at go and just understand, you know, a, what's going on underneath the hood, but how to sort of build pieces and stick them together. Yeah. I actually went to a, uh, like a meetup when go was first coming out, Google had, asked a bunch of developers do talks and stuff and they described the whole concept of go and the guy actually had the language deployed to a satellite which was really neat so he had the laptop with him at the talk and he actually rotated the satellite in space at the talk it was pretty wow it was all all done in golang um you ever see that newsletter the email newsletter golang weekly Mm -hmm. yep absolutely we had uh peter cooper of cooper press on the show this morning Oh, nice. Yeah, he puts together, um, well, that's Cooper Press, does all those mm-hmm. like Ruby Weekly, Golang Weekly. So he was, he was a pretty cool dude. We were, um, we were talking about like startups and content and the, I, the concept of like when should the startup start making the content, right? Should it be mm-hmm. right have the idea or should they be secretive and like build the product for six months and then write the content or like at what stage should they be writing the content? <laughs> and overwhelmingly the answer was like immediately. Yep. I agree. I mean, yeah. the, so, I mean, I, I advise right now, I think my advisory list is around a dozen different startups from, you know, tech stars, brandery up tech here locally. Um, and it's so funny cause you know, this, you know, the, there's just this over, you know, this over caution of sharing your idea with someone and the idea that they're going to go steal it. And in most cases, it's like, you know, it's, it's almost laughable because at the end of the day, it's, you know, just, you know, get out there and build your product as fast as you can. And, you know, if you're not telling anybody about it, you're probably not marketing or doing a very good job of getting people to your product. So you just need to be as loud and as noisy as possible with your particular marketing for your idea. Yeah. So, and they also don't have to necessarily like be give. they don't have to find and focus on the one, like something that's proprietary and should be quiet, like, right. And then yeah. go pick that one. They could literally just start with the journey, start just writing articles about the problem, start weekly up. They could just, you could generate all of this other content around it so that in six months when your product launches or in three months or whatever, you have this long repository, this history. And when people start searching for that question, when you start selling the product in six months, they're finding you through the content you wrote from day one. Absolutely. I mean, you can just have a landing page saying, hey, sign up for my email, right? I've seen a lot of companies do, you know, get a huge following just from, you know, like, you know, to your point, starting the content and just at the bottom of that saying, hey, to keep up to date with what we're doing here, you know, give us your email address and we'll just include you in it. So. So are you guys going to be doing that then? Um, I don't know. So, I mean, we're so early in this and, you know, a lot of the client, a lot of the clients and stuff like that, that we're working with, I don't know if, that would necessarily resonate with them. Probably the the second to third 
phase of this particular company, um, that'll definitely be the case. I mean, we, we don't even have a logo yet. That's how like kind of fresh this thing is. So, <laughs> which, but we're engaging the, you know, the marketing, you know, the, the marketing teams and stuff like that, uh, you know, sometime in, in the near future to get all of that stuff rolling. Very cool. All right. So yeah, cause th- I think that topic, the functional approaches or like taking ideas from other complicated engineering segments of the market and then applying them there's like that's a huge pile of content you could write you could write so much content absolutely yeah (laughs) i mean it's literally bottomless so i have on the the sheet things that you want to talk about things you have ideas about right and one of them was uh prototyping for production so i'm curious Mm -hmm. like what's what's running through your mind on that topic so um, I actually do this. Uh, I do this as a lecture at over at Miami University here locally in uh, in, in Cincinnati. And um, you know, prototyping the production for me is really about you know there's some some core principles in sort of the process you, that you design when you're prototyping um, a particular feature or a particular product, like a full product. That if you if you follow them and you you know, you, you, you know, you sort of use these guiding principles, you can, you know, make it really flexible. And so what you don't end up with is, you know, a bunch of code that you end up throwing away at the end of the day. So, you know, a lot of people won't take the time to invest when they're prototyping, they'll just try to get it done as quickly as possible and sort of building things in a very modular uh, style. Um, And if you, you know, sort of focus on building the components and, you know, the individual maybe like services, if you're doing, if, you know, if you think you're going to end up in like a service oriented architecture, um, you know, and, and, and sort of focusing on the pieces of it, you know, you can pretty put together a pretty good Lego set for building a prototype that, you know, will serve you as you even go into maybe future prototypes. Cause you can say, you know, Hey, I need a, a service that just, you know, sends, you know, newsletters or emails or, you know, it, you know, plugs into Twilio and, you know, sends an SMS and you, you know, you sort of have those, you know, those tools in your toolkit as you're going into prototyping. And so as you're going through the wireframe process and sort of identifying that what I encourage anybody, you know, that's engaging from a technical side to do is, you know, not to look at, you know, the features of what the product, you know, not necessarily just the features that the product needs to, to accomplish or to do, but also, you know, what are the building blocks that compose the particular system and, and focus on dividing those into chunks with really good sort of clean interfaces on them so that they can be reused so even if you're focused on the wrong thing and you, you know, decide, okay, this is a horrible idea. We, you know, the, you, our, our market's telling us to go in a different direction. You still are able to sort of break apart those pieces and reuse them to quickly construct that next prototype. Um, so you don't end up with one giant monolithic piece of code that, you know, then ends up needing to be completely re-engineered when you actually go to just, even if it is successful, even to scale it, right? Oh, so you just like, so write code the right way at the beginning. Yeah. And I mean, so many people will just immediately go to, you know, I'm just going to build it really quickly. Right. Like, and they just start, you know, they create one project and everything just gets slammed into that one project. And then when they go to change something, they spend the entire time chasing all the things that they broke because the code's just thrown together too quick. Yeah. It only takes, um, it only takes a long time to do it the right way. If you don't know how to do it the right way. Correct. <laughs> so. <laughs> People that run off to do the prototype, to do it as a prototype, it's like they've usually always done that. And then it's like, hold on a second, prototyper. Let's yeah. let's let's build a product. 
or let's take that and let's put that thing on two servers and see how it's see how it works, right? Like, you know, right. let's try to run it with a load balancer in front of it. Oh, now somebody's logged out. Hmm, interesting. <laughs> you know, that's always that. You know, whenever I'm working with uh, CS students, I always you know tell them I'm like, okay, what happens if there's two of these? You know, th- does it all still work? Is there, you know, are you sharing resources correctly? Are you using, you know, is is the app built state, you know, in the correct stateless, you know, formats? So, and that's kind of why you, I guess, like go right. Yeah. Yep. Because it it was built with those concepts. It was like Google's approach as what if we build a language today, right? Mm-hmm. So, what do you, in in your mind, uh, the differences between director of engineering and CTO? What kind of immediately stands out as like some bullet points differences to you? Well, I mean, I mean, director of engineering largely is you know, uh, while my CTO roles in the past have been you know with startups that are sort of wearing that you know director of engineering hat, um, you know, largely this was a space where I knew that I didn't didn't necessarily immediately come in with all of the knowledge that I needed just inside of the, you know, the, the sort of ecosystem. And so for me, I was sort of, you know, happy to take that director of engineering position to sort of learn what I needed to in that role and, and, and get the, you know, the two people who developed and have operated in this space as mentors to sort of, you know, help me grow and learn what I needed to um, in this particular ecosystem. Um, you know, the, the main things that stand out is, you know, as we build the team, you know, um, the director of engineering, largely I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to be the one defining what the processes are, how the team works, how we plug into the other, you know, groups that are inside of the organization. Um, the, you know, while the CTO would, you know, would, would take on those responsibilities without a VP or director of engineering, um, you know, in this particular instance, you know, the, the CTOs that we have, are so close to the problem set that we're solving and, and such experts in it that, you know, it just makes sense for them to sort of focus on, you know, how do we continue to make sure that we have really great product market fit and we're servicing the customer. And then I can take on all of the implementation and taking this out to, uh, to the market. Excellent. Cause like when you take the mark, like, okay, so, but you just caused fireworks to happen in my head. <laughs> So at the same time you're talking about that, we got a question from the live stream says, you know, what if someone builds your idea and they steal it in like less than six months from the time you're able to talk about it until the time you engineer it. And at the same time, it's like, well, if, if you don't take your product out into the world and get feedback and start understanding like who your tribe is, who your audience is, then you don't even know if what you're building is useful. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the you know, part of that prototyping talk that I give is how fast can you set up your your product feedback loop or your feature feedback loop, right? Like, you know, if you're yeah. you can I mean, you can immediately get feedback on wireframes. Right? I've seen I've seen entire companies raise money on Envision Studio, like Envision, you know, sort of like uh, you know, demos. Oh, I, I did this. I yeah. did this. And you know, it, but but if you get that feedback, then you're you're actually you're you're iterating and already starting to to turn the ship towards what the customers are saying provides value and what they'll pay for. If you're not focused on that, like you might as well not be. You know, you you're going to end up six months down the road and you're going to wonder why it didn't hit the market. That's exactly the case. Also, it's cheaper. So I did an app, a fitness related app, with a company that was like did fitness stuff, and they were like, "Oh, we want to build that. This is a version one. We want to build it, build it, build it, build it." I said, "Well, what if we just..." 
it's funny because I I'm taking less money to just do something I think would be a, <laughs> a better way to do it, right? So I I said let's not build the app. Let's instead build a fully like functioning Envision prototype. And you can take this prototype around with you on your phones to the gyms and like walk up to people or ask your gym customers and like have them tap through the app and like give you ask them what they think and they're like oh this is really cool and then they did that at scale with you know probably 50 to 150 people and then we did an iteration and they went out and talked to 50 people then iteration then iteration and we basically iterated the entire thing with just a designer hooking it up in Envision and us. Mm-hmm. And we got through that whole process. We weren't having to change code. We weren't having to change models. We weren't having to rewrite stuff. Like we didn't have to do any of that. And I instantly thought, like, oh man, I'm so happy Envision exists. This is such a better way to do it. But at the same time, all of that iterations going on, you're off to the side, sort of, you know, scoping your pieces so that when it is time to build stuff, you're sort of slowly accumulating. And then, you know, you're not waiting six months to take it to the market. The development time is largely cut short, you know, because you're cutting all of your rework and you've already got a good idea of what the data flows look like inside of your, your, your app. Oh, absolutely. It's cheaper, faster, and we know people want it. Yep. Like that's just recipe for success, right? Pretty much. Yeah. So I'm pumped about that. Okay. So if did you watch the rocket thing yesterday? I did. I did. It was crazy. How pumped were you about that? I, you know, as a kid who went through space camp, like to see what he's doing, you know, I mean, and, you know, to land both stages right next to each other, because, you know, that's just the flair that was needed for something along those lines. I mean, it could have been a complete, like watching both of them topple and the largest explosion in the world. And he still would have been like, oh, you know, first time we tried it, whatever. But he stuck the landing on both of those. And it was just like, yeah, okay, all right. Yep, there it is. It was so beautiful. I'm so happy because like the whole industry, all the investors, everyone's like pro space like that. That was important for the whole industry. You know? Correct. Yeah. I mean, even the competitors, right? right? It just proves, you know, the, you know, private space flight and, you know, um, you know, the investment that, you know, NASA's put into sort of driving into that is it's, it's proving to be the right way. I mean, again, you know, if you allow innovators and, and money to flow into it and, you know, it, there's good business there, then there's probably going to be good stuff done there. Yeah. Cause if you think about it, there's some, some families, a mother, father and son and daughter who are sitting there watching mm-hmm. that. And they land successful and everyone goes hooray. And the kids are like, I want to be astronauts. And like, I want to, or I, right. or I want to go work on space. They'd be like, yeah, you could do it. Like, awesome. Like that's going to be where, but if those things would have blown up, the parents have been like, good luck. No, you know, <laughs> like, uh, we'll see. And then like everybody would have been negative about it. So I, I was really pulling for, uh, for it to, to work out successfully. Completely agree. Did you hear our Mike Anderson episode? I did not. No. Okay. I suggest it. And okay. he builds satellites and the rockets and works, runs like a team at NASA and a team, uh, as private company. And they are grappling, they're building a system right now that's going to go up in a rocket, grapple with Landsat 7, a two ton satellite mid orbit and refuel it. And then like go bring food to the space station. But, oh, wow. Okay, yeah. Good he, luck with that. Right. <clears throat> so, yeah. So he told us about kind of how they do that. Yeah. <laughs> And robotics, and because it's curious, it's like, all right, well, you know, we write code, and it's important that the code runs, or like, whatever it may be. Um, and obviously, we do. Like in our world, te- people consider test optional. Like if you go ha- talk to a hundred people, fifty of them say, oh, tests are optional. I mean, yeah, t- talk to a hundred experts, tests are not optional. But 
uh, the general consensus, but like when you put something into space, there's like test models, like everything you have small replica models, life-size models at NASA's plant, you run it over and over and over with the brightest people on earth and run everything. And then it's like an autonomous mission. It's insane. Yeah. And then lo and behold, like there's still something that's minutely, you know, messed up because, you know, you just don't know until you're there, right? Doing it because it was an opportunity on Mars ran into something like that. So, yeah. So we're wishing the best for Mike Anderson's uh, two-ton refuel. I'm super pumped. He also does a robotics thing. His company um, donates some of their profit to uh, Robotics First, which is this program that teaches kids in school about robotics and how to be roboticists. Nice. Really cool. And he goes, he goes, I feel like it's my duty because when I'm laying like on my deathbed, I might be on one of the respirators. <laughs> And I don't want their embedded <laughs> systems to like dump memory or crash. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad his motivations are in the right spot then, I guess. I know it's hilarious. It's like I I consider myself pretty nerdy, but I don't build embedded systems. So I wouldn't have gone there. But it, it, like it's just so interesting how much we rely on technology. <laughs> those are systems, those human, there's like this whole study. Have you ever come across human factors engineering? Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, that stuff is so interesting, man. It's like you use technology, but then you use it in high pressure life and death situations. And like, and then you get these marketing people that are like, I'm a usability expert. It's like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just such an interesting spectrum of like the different roles that exist. There's so much technology compared to 20 years ago when I was growing up. I'm 30 now. Um, but I mean, there was no one had phones in school and there was barely internet except for at my dad's office, really, you know, it was, yep. it's insane. Now everyone's in this life cycle and their business is a part of it. Yeah. It's the, the whole IOT stuff that's coming out is just, you know, it's crazy to watch some of that stuff. Cause there, I mean, there's, there's going to be, there hasn't been sort of that major acquisition yet inside of that market, but you know, you're starting to see some of your major players sort of come out in that space, both from, you know, some of them are focused on medical, some of them on light manufacturing or manufacturing and just asset tracking. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting the amount of data and how dependent we're becoming on all of the networks and just connectivity of individual things. The future, like I'm really excited for 20 years in the future. Like it's going to be crazy. Your company is going to be, like revolutionizing the software programming world with your building codes or whatnot. We hope. <laughs> <laughs> so if, so if Elon Musk, he's super excited, does his rocket launch and then he calls you up and he's like, Brian, uh, you have to come over to my house. I built the time machine. You get to jump in it and go back 10 years. What would you tell your previous self 10 years ago? You know, I don't know if I would go back you know, I mean, it's such a you know ridiculous answer, but I don't know if I'd go back and change anything because a lot of the stuff that I've learned has been through, you know, a, a an amazing mentor network that you know I just I continue to rely on, and you know some of those mentors have come, and I've gotten really close with them simply out of some of the missteps that I've made and sort of searching for help, and so you know that you know that that need to go back and sort of redo things I feel like would change where I'm at and the opportunities that I have in front of me so much that, you know, you can end up in a completely different spot, right? You could end up with, you know, things just not being right in life, I guess. So Elon Musk was not happy with that answer and he has now pulled out a ray gun. 
Okay. He says, <laughs> you have to go in. You don't have to change anything. And this is not me. This is Musk, dude. So take it out okay. on him. All right. Um, Fine. You don't. You don't have to change anything, right? Yeah. And and actually, nothing that you would say to yourself could change anything. We're protected mm-hmm. here in this in this loop. Okay. Just a piece of advice. Just a little something you'd say to yourself, like buy Bitcoin or don't step on that trash can or like so, like what or you know read Martin Fowler's book sooner uh, or, you know, go invent Golang, like anything you would like, what would you tell yourself 10 years ago? Yeah, I probably would have told myself 10 years ago that um, you, you know, it took me a while to rely on my mentor network. And so, Uh you know, if I could have, you know, pushed myself a little bit more as I was younger to say, you know, there's a lot of people out there who have, you know, they, they, you know, if you're, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're probably in the wrong room, right? And so make sure that you're surrounding yourself with people that constantly push you and can help you and to just be willing to ask for help because, you know, a lot of times, you know, I was, you know, when I was really young, it was like, oh, well, I can do this, not a problem. And then when I failed, I was like irritated with myself. And really what I should have done is I should have just, you know, sort of included more people in the process of tackling a problem and surrounding myself with the right people to sort of increase my chances of success very early on in my career, I'd say. Excellent. So you mentor network, mentor network, big time. Mentor network. Yeah. All right. Elon Musk put the gun away. Uh, He's now giving me a free Tesla. He's hugging yeah, me just, now. He wants to be my mentor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you sign the non-disclosure about the gun thing. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Brian, for coming on the call today. It was super exciting. Yep, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.